Hello, and welcome to the RUF Stanford podcast. RUF Stanford is a ministry that relies 100% on the generosity of donations in order to serve the Stanford community. Feel free to support us by going to give2ruf.org. We hope you enjoy the sermon. What we're doing in here on Tuesday nights this quarter is we're looking at questions that Jesus asks. We usually ask questions of God, which is great, and uh, that's well and fine. But I kind of thought it'd be interesting to think about the questions that he asked us. And um, I thought about this week the question that people throw out there, if you know, if you could eat, have dinner with anyone alive or dead in history, who would it be? And usually when we answer that question, or usually at least when I answer that question, is um, you think of all the things you want to ask them, right? What would you ask Martin Luther King? What would you ask Jesus? What would you ask Lincoln? Um, Whatever it is, or whoever it is. But I think it's also equally fascinating to wonder what questions they might ask you. And, in point of fact, usually you you can learn a lot about someone's heart from the questions they think are important to ask you, right? So, Jesus is asking questions. These are questions that God asks. And tonight is the question, why are you afraid? So let's read real briefly from Mark. Um, this is Jesus with the disciples um, after a period of teaching. On that day, evening had come and he said to them, let us go across the other side the Sea of Galilee. Leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat just as he was. Other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke, and he rebuked the wind, and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And then he said to the disciples, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and sea obey him? The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. Let's pray. Father, we hear this story and wrestle with what it means, wrestle with whether or not it feels true. But you've given us this story. You've shown us uh, your son's power. In the first century, as we consider these words, what we need is we actually need your Holy Spirit to convince us of them because there's much good news here. There's much fear here. Um, And sometimes I think I'm afraid and we're afraid to believe and act on this good news that you're powerful and that you're good. So please, we need you to be with us. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. I've asked this before in this setting. Some of y'all know this. Does anybody know what the command in Scripture that is given more often than any other command? For three Jesus points, anybody? Just kidding. There's no such thing as Jesus points. If you thought there were Jesus points, you're deducted two Jesus points. Um, Please come back, Doria, if you're new. Um, Command most often given in Scripture. Anybody? Anybody want to throw it out there? Bold enough? Do not fear. Do not fear. Classic. Um, if you're not familiar with it, I think that probably actually sounds rather odd to kind of all of our ears. Um, the idea that the command God gives more often than any other command 
is don't be afraid. I think that tells us, if nothing else tonight, take that and run away with it. And ask yourself, why does God repeat that command more than any other command? Why do you think God says that? Is that what you thought He would say? What's He talking about? But I think what we can say is, if that's the command He gives more often than any other command, do not be afraid, then there is something about fear that is primal to the human experience. And there is something about fear that teaches us about the very nature, what it means to be human, what it means to live in this world, about who God is. And so that's what we're examining tonight, is fear. What is it? Why is God so concerned with it? What does it actually teach us about ourselves and about Him? And what this story does is it actually gives us a very simple picture of what fear is. So what is fear? We see the disciples terrified, right? Why are you so afraid is Jesus' response to their condition. This is what fear is. And the picture this story gives it to us. It's the anxiety produced when you realize you don't have control. It's the anxiety produced when you realize you don't have control, when you realize that the circumstances in your life are bigger than you. If you're not familiar with who the disciples are, these are men who follow Jesus that He called, and this is a small group Bible study. But most of their background is that they were professional fishermen. This was their home turf. They were not new to boating. They were not new to sailing. This is what they had done their entire lives. Earlier in the Gospels, we read how Jesus goes to fishermen and says, Hey, come follow me. That's really important for thinking about this study, or this story, because this is her specialty. This is their place of mastery. The place that they have more expertise, and it's the place they have most control in life. So what does that mean? It means the storm was terrifying, not for people like you and me, or at least me, who has no sailing experience. This is the kind of storm that's terrifying for people who have spent their entire life on the sea. Right? And what happened in that moment is they realized, I don't have control. In the area of my life that I should have the most control, that I have the most expertise and the most experience and the most mastery, I don't have control. If, you, if y'all haven't read the book, When Beth, Breath Becomes Air, has anybody read this or heard of it? It's written by a Stanford professor. Uh, he, he was a neurosurgeon. He actually died last year. He was my age. Um, and it's a memoir of the last years of his life. And he was a brilliant neurosurgeon. He was nearly miraculous in his ability to heal people and perform surgery and to fix things in people's brains. And one of the themes of the book is him coming to grips with the fact that he is one of the top healers in the world and he has no control over his own health. And that the final and truest and most powerful circumstance in his life was the cancer in his body and he had no control over it. Fear is the anxiety produced when you make the inevitable realization that you don't have the power or the control that you thought you had. How often and how many different places in our lives have we actually seen through the illusion of control? One of the best things that can happen to you that can begin to produce wisdom in your life is to actually go through the terror of finding out you don't have the control you thought you had. We don't want to do it, 
But most wisdom and character actually comes through those kinds of moments. So where are the places that anxiety, that anger, that confusion, that despondency, that hopelessness have taken root in your life? Those are the places where the illusion of control is being exposed. And what fear is in that moment is it's a taskmaster. It runs back to try to get control that you actually can't have. It's always driving us to do things. It's always driving us. It's driving us to study. It's driving us to party. It's driving us to exercise, to commit, to decommit. It always drives with a threat. If you don't obey me, you will be sorry. It withholds blessing all the time, right around the corner. It says, follow me, follow me. Work harder, commit decommit study, but it never delivers. Right? Fear of missing out. Fear of disappointing others. Fear of being alone. We are fear-driven. It's the main thing that we drink and eat to get through being as perfect as we're trying to be here in all the different facets of human living. I'm just not, not just talking about school. Um, this is what an eating disorder is. Anorexia, bulimia, or actually the most prominent eating disorder is orthorexia. That's trying to take control of your body because you know it will betray you. The reality is our entire life is an eating disorder. We're trying to take control of our lives. Something deep in us knows it will betray us. Our addictions to exercise, to pornography, to sex, to self-harm, to perfectionism, to alcohol, to Netflix, to HBO programming personal confession (laughs) those are our ways of asserting control in tiny little parts of our lives so we can pretend like we have it many of us struggle with depression to varying degrees and you know what makes depression even worse is the fact that we all feel like we should have had the power to be happy Right? All the different things. When your, marriage implo- when your parents' marriage implodes, when your health or someone else's health fails. You know what getting a bad grade is or rejection from a company is? That is someone saying, I have power over you. What you feel is the feeling of powerlessness. That despite how well you have done, you still can't secure the blessings you want. That is a feeling of powerlessness. That's the anxiety you feel, is the anxiety of powerlessness. And then, of course, there's the inevitability of death. The song we just sang was singing through our death. Uh, one of the most important hymn writers of our age actually says, the main thing the worship of God is, is preparation for death. It is dealing with the one most true thing, the inevitability of our death. One of the things I hope we do in RUF, I hope it's happier than this kind of topic tonight at different moments, but one of the things I hope you do is you actually jump out of the tyranny of the urgent that's saying to you all the time, this little micro moment is the most important thing in life, this little micro moment is the most important, and you step out for a second and consider the big things. Do you have an answer for death? Do you have a hope at love? The one thing the one severe experience everyone will share in the global population, regardless of race, religion, ethnicity, socioeconomic status, or education, the one experience we all share is death. All of your relationships will end in death. This is our big main thing. 
If nothing else, how about this? Make a practice of remembering that every day. It'll save you from a lot of anxiety, actually, because it'll tell you what the big thing you have to deal with is. Several of you, I'm sure, have had friends and family who've battled cancer in their life. If you have a close friend, I've had people in my own family, a nephew in his teens, wrestle and battle cancer. You'll know if you spend time with someone who fights cancer, even if they come out of it, even if they go into remission, once you know that there has been one cell of cancer in your body, for the rest of the life, your life, you know you don't have control. Right? Fear is the anxiety produced when we realize we don't have control. We manage it all sorts of ways. We manage it with humor. We manage it with arrogance, with tribalism, with judgmentalism, with naive optimism, with distraction, with obsession, busyness, pleasure. There's a study that the Stanford Business School actually wrote about last year and put out that revealed when people ponder the inevitability of death, they always try to get more power. More money, more prestige in their workplace. They try to get more power. Trying to get control again. It's another eating disorder. Fear is what happens when the illusion of control that we live in begins to evaporate. It is our master. It's our motivator. It's our oxygen. It's so a part of our lives that I actually think if you begin to like possibly believe that God loves you and has conquered death, one of the things that you will go through is you will have to wrestle with, is it possible to not live from fear? Because I realized that was everything I lived from. Is it possible that I could actually live from delight and confidence instead of from fear. Because, man, fear will get you really far. And fear is what we've always been using to fuel ourselves. Every week when I read Scripture, I always quote Psalm 40 at the end. I want to read just Psalm... I usually read Psalm 40, verse 8. This is actually the whole passage, 6 through 8. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass. All humanity is grass. And its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers and the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. And the people are grass. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God will stand forever. I read that at the beginning of every RUF as a way of reminding all of us our flesh and our beauty will fail. The promises of God stand forever. So how do we begin to deal with it? And we're going to do some light religious philosophy for a moment. So stick with me. It's very light. Don't worry. And if you get lost, um, come ask me and let's talk about it. And here's what I want to kind of bring into the conversation for a moment is everyone acknowledges one thing. So I want to talk about one acknowledgement and two questions. So we all acknowledge one thing and then there are two questions we have to ask about that one thing. This is what I mean. Everyone acknowledges that there is a thing called power. There are all kinds of power. Y'all know more about the big cosmic powers than I do, electric, atomic, physical power. But power is beyond simply those physical realms. There's also emotional and relational and psychological power. There are forces in the world. We all know this. This is someone everyone acknowledges. Everyone knows that all kinds of power exist. It's the ability to influence things in different domains. We all wield a bit of power, a little bit. We all also know this, that the power of the universe is beyond us. Death is coming for us all. The first acknowledgement is simply this. Power exists, and it has mastery over us. It is beyond us. 
Here are the two questions, and this is where people's worldviews begin to diverge, that I think these two questions are worthy uh, of your attention regardless of where you are. The first question is this, then. Is the power behind the universe impersonal or personal? Is the power behind the universe personal or impersonal? And secondly, if it is personal, is it good or bad? Let me talk about those for just a minute. Because that's actually exactly where the disciples are. Teacher, don't you care that we are perishing? There's, there's some implied things in that question, right? On, on, it actually, it's, it's pretty obvious right on the surface. Teacher is, hey, person of authority and power. Right? That's a statement about his office, his authority, and his power. Don't you care that we are perishing? Here's what that question is. Do you care enough about this situation, and do you have a power to do anything about it? Are you good? Do you have power? And Jesus woke up and said, Peace be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And the, weir- the way these words are written is important. The disciples were Jewish. And that means they actually grew up singing all the psalms that we sing and read in the Old Testament. And there are a lot of psalms about how God made the stars, and God rules the heavens, and God made the seas. And rules over the seas. And what Jesus doesn't say is He doesn't say, In the name of Yahweh, peace be still. He doesn't evoke another authority or power. He says, which is how everyone else would have done it, He says, peace be still. Meaning that He spoke as the Lord over the sea. He spoke in His own authority and power, and the wind ceased, and a great calm came on the water. These words are important too. It doesn't say the wind eventually died down. It says the wind stopped instantly. And choppy seas in a storm of that size take a day or more to die down. It doesn't say over time, eventually, the weather calmed. It says on the water, there was immediately a great calm. In the ancient world, the sea was the great uncontrollable force. In people's minds, the sea was the one thing no one could control. And what, what good art does, and God is actually all about good art, is good art shows and doesn't tell. Here's what I mean by that. If you want to learn about postmodernism, you should watch True Detective. No one wants to read Nietzsche. Okay? True Detective is a brilliant drama that engages the ideas of postmodernism. Nietzsche is really, really painful to read. True Detective shows us something. Nietzsche tells us something. Here's the reason I make that point. We are moved actually more by being shown things than being told things or explained things. God actually made us. He knows how we work. We're not just thinking things. We're feeling things. What Jesus is doing is He is showing them who He is instead of telling them. He didn't say, I'm Lord over the sea. He showed them, I'm Lord of creation. That He's the incarnate God, the creator, the master, the maker, the Lord of the storm. He is showing them, I am bigger than your circumstances. That the wind and the waves are His beck and call. That He is one behind the storms. He is the one over the storms. He is the one in control of the storms. And He's the one who's purposed the storms. So is the power behind the universe impersonal or personal? 
If it's impersonal, then we have no obligation to it. It has no obligation to us. Morality, any sense you have of right or wrong, any sense you have of justice, is nothing more than a social construction that we've agreed upon, now don't really agree upon. Right? Our lives have no intrinsic meaning. Suffering has no meaning. Death has no meaning. Our sadness has no meaning. Our urgent sense of justice has no meaning. It means your longing for social justice is a farce. It's just a social construction. Right? That we're just following our incidental program. There is nothing personal or intentional about the world. This is the way Matthew McConaughey's character said it in True Detective, which, like Fight Club, if you want to watch True Detective, I'll watch it with you tonight. It's amazing. (laughs) But his character is incredible, and this is in episode one. He says, I think human consciousness is a tragic misstep in evolution. We became too self-aware. We are things that labor under the illusion of having a self, an accretion of sensory experience and feeling, programmed with total assurance that we are somebody, when in fact everybody is a nobody. The way Richard Dawkins said it is this, in a universe of electrons and selfish genes and blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt, other people are going to get lucky. You won't find rhyme or reason in it, nor justice. The universe we observe has precisely the properties we should expect. If there is at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pitiless indifference. If the power behind the universe is impersonal, your fear and your anxiety is very legitimate. And probably the only thing you need to do is have more of it. probably don't have enough if the power behind the universe is impersonal. You probably need to be more ruthless if the power behind the universe is impersonal. Because all you got is you. However, if the power behind the universe is personal, then that means there's a plan. It means there's meaning. It means there's intentionality. That means in life there are oughts. And that in life there are ought-nots. And it also means that the oughts of life and the ought-nots in life are actually based on that person and not our individual sensibilities. It means that there's purpose, there's a story being told, that our sadness and our confusion and our need for judgment and our need for justice and our need for love and our suffering actually have a place in the story. It's a mysterious story, it's rife with confusion, but it means that there could be an answer for our fear. The first question is... Is the power behind this world impersonal or personal? And the Bible's resounding answer to the first question is yes. The power behind the universe is personal. And that person has actually made himself known in the person of Jesus. The second question is this then. Is that person good or bad? And if this person is not good, all fear and anxiety that you experience is still very warranted. And again, I would say you should probably have more. If the person behind the universe is not good, you don't have enough fear and anxiety right now. You should add to it. But if the person is good, then there's hope. What Jesus did in the story is He showed the disciples that He is the power. And it's here, after that calming the storm, that He asked the question, Why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? And this is really important. This is really important. 
And it helps us understand how Jesus walks us through our fear and begins to actually relieve it. It's to understand this. He's asking the same question two different ways. Why are you so afraid? Do you still not trust me? It's the same question. Because fear is not resolved in your life by you gaining control. First of all, you'll never have control. But fear, rather, is actually resolved when you begin to trust the character of the one who does have control. He is saying, your fear comes from the fact that you don't trust me, that I am good. That's what he's telling the disciples. Fear is not resolved from getting God to tell you how your whole story is going to go and how all the details work together. Why has he allowed this storm or that storm to last this long or to go this dark? Fear is actually resolved when you're absolutely assured that the one who set the stars in the sky and who makes the seasons and who schedules the rain and snow, the one who does have control, you trust and know he is good. And as love endures forever. I hope you'll have this experience one day when my little girls learn to swim before they had ever been in the pool in any kind of meaningful way, there is absolute terror in their eyes when they stand on the edge of a pool the first time. Because they know, in their two-year-old mind, that the pool is beyond their power. It's completely beyond their control. Now, here's my question for you. At that moment, what do they need? Do they need a lecture in the physics of buoyancy? Or do they need an assurance that I am good and strong? If you've ever worked on a ropes course, I used to do that a bunch in college. You know that not only does a lecture on physics not work for two-year-olds, it also doesn't work for adults who are getting on a ropes course for the first time. (laughs) So let's not hate on the two-year-olds. Explain the capacity of a climbing rope, the kind of weight it can hold to an adult, doesn't actually relieve their fear. And you know what we always resort to in those kind of settings? You try to explain it first. How much weight? Several hundred pounds. Don't worry about it. We've never had one break. doesn't matter. What gets people up on the course the first time when they're terrified is, trust me, we won't let you get hurt. We actually appeal to the character of the leaders, not the physics of the rope. That's what brings rest and the confidence to move forward in their lives. Let's assume for a second a two-year-old can understand a lesson in physics. Let's say you could do that, right? You know what I want to happen when my girls learn to swim, and I hope when one day you have the joy of this? I want two things to happen, not one. The goal is not simply that they learn how to swim. The goal is that they learn how to swim, and they enjoy my love and my affection for them. There's two goals. I want to grow my relationship with them. None of us wants to put a DVD in that explains swimming to our children and then tell them to go and do that, right? The best part of it was building trust and mutual joy. That was better than the swimming part. The best thing in the world is not their swimming. It's the look that you get from them when they experience and you see it register in their mind and their heart, my daddy is strong and he is good even if I feel out of control and don't know what to do or how to understand this. The best thing in the world is establishing in their hearts how much you love them and how much they can trust you. 
Does it get complicated as a parent? Absolutely. Do you have to push them through things that are really hard that they can't understand? Absolutely. Do you have to put them in situations that they even are going to fail because you love them? Yeah, parenting is hard. But you do it because you love them. And the thing that gets them through those seasons, and we've all been there as kids, some of us may still hate our parents for some good, hard things they put us through. It's tough. But the, ideally, the thing that gets them through those seasons, us through those seasons, is that they always know the answer to the question of, will I be okay, Dad, is yes, you can trust me. Jesus is prompting the question, why are you so afraid? Do you still not trust me? Fear is not resolved when you gain control or by learning the secret behind every storm in your life. Fear begins to lose its hold in your life when you trust the character of the one who is both good and who's more powerful than our circumstances. When Jesus becomes bigger to you, your fears get smaller. Fears don't pass because the storms pass. Sometimes there are no storms and we're terrified. Sometimes there are storms and you can have peace. Fears pass because it sinks into your heart that Jesus is in control and He's good. How can we trust He's good? That's the question because that's where the disciples are. They're at the beginning of His ministry. And they're beginning to see He's powerful and they're trying to understand whether or not He's good. So how can we know He's good? It's because on the other side of His ministry, we can look back now and see that He did the one thing that anybody could do for someone that if they did this, you could never doubt their love or goodness towards you ever again. And this is the way Paul describes it in Romans 5. While we were still weak, at the right time, Jesus died for the ungodly. One will scarcely die for a righteous person. Maybe for a good person, would, uh, one would dare even to die. But God shows His love for us, and that while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. Pay attention to what Paul said. He said, Christ died for the ungodly. Did you catch that? He didn't say Christ died for the godly. He didn't die for the best me that I like to imagine exists but kind of know doesn't really exist. The best me that I'm going to try to be next week but fail out again. He didn't die for that me. That me is a fiction I keep convincing myself could be a reality next week. I suspect you have that me as well. He didn't die for that you. He died for the real you. The real you is the one that keeps showing up and continues to be far less than what God has called you to be. That's the you He died for the Lord of the storm suffered for and gave His life for. Can you doubt the goodness and the devotion to your well-being of the love of the One who gave their life for us even when we were opposed to Him? Maybe you're opposed to Jesus now. Enmity, sometimes it looks like hostility. A lot of times it looks mostly like indifference. You do not have to clean yourself up and become like a Christian to come rest in His love. And in fact, that will probably make it really hard for you to understand His love if you think that's the key before you can come. That's how good He is. The disciples were still afraid though. right? They saw Jesus' power, but they actually still didn't understand how good He is. They're standing on the other side of the cross. And this is what happens. If you come into the presence of power and you're still not sure if it's good, that's a terrifying moment. That's why they're still afraid. They still don't understand fully what He's come to do. But Jesus was headed across for them. So what about your tomorrow? What about your tonight? What about the fears you carry? 
I think probably we can find ourselves in a couple different ways in a places. First of all, you might think he's powerful but not good. Uh, that, that could look like a lot of different things in our life. You might think, oh, there's a God, he's powerful. But one of the ways you can tell that maybe even though you say he's good, you don't believe he's good, is that your religion looks more like moralism and not like worship. Moralism is a problem of both the right and the left uh, because it's a problem of the human heart, not of the right or the left. And what it means is that only, you think people can only be loved, justified, vindicated, or accepted if they measure up. And it always results in being very judgmental of others, always believing there are certain types of people you can never associate with, that you think God... He might be powerful, but he could never love a lot of different kinds of people. He's not that kind of good. Maybe you've said this. Maybe you've thought the, another way it could look is this. You've said, I trust him with my circumstances tomorrow. He's in control. I think he's powerful. But I don't trust him with my decisions. That means you still don't trust his goodness. You're like, oh, he's powerful. He'll take care of me tomorrow. But I don't trust him with his yeah, I love and I enjoy the love of God, or I say that, but there can be no rich relationship in any kind of relationship if one of the parties is disingenuine. And what disobedience is to God's law is it's the conviction that God doesn't know what He's talking about or isn't good. God has said things about a way to live. And anytime we come up against those things and say, no. That's an accusation and assault on his character. I don't believe you have what's in best for me, what's, what's good for me in store, in mind. Right? So you believe he's there, and maybe he's powerful, but you're like, I don't think he's good. And my guess is there's no rich relationship between you two because you can never be experienced rich relationship with anyone when you constantly doubt their character and don't trust their word. Disobedience is God... You don't know what you're talking about. You don't know what's good for me. We're all there. Maybe you think he's good but not powerful. Maybe you think he's not big enough to handle your sin. He's good. But I am really not Christian. The sin in my life, the brokenness in my life, it is far beyond what these kind of RUF people might be carrying. And we need to be honest that in some ways we're afraid of our sin. We're, we actually think it has more power than God has to forgive. We don't want to voice and know it's actually there. That, and if we can't do that, we will not discover that He is merciful and full of grace. The only barrier to the healing of His mercy is not that you haven't performed morally well enough, that you didn't read a min- reach a minimum threshold of goodness. It's that you just haven't admitted your need for grace. My favorite two verses from a hymn. Come ye weary, heavy laden, lost and ruined by the fall. If you tarry or if you wait until you're better, you will never come at all. So don't let conscience make you linger, nor a fitness fondly dream. Because all the fitness He requires is to feel your need of Him.
you can trust Him with your sin, you can trust Him with your brokenness. It's hard to believe because we're all pretty sure, and I think you're right, that there's no relationship in this world that can handle that kind of true and deep honesty. We don't even like to admit to ourselves who we really are, and we definitely are pretty sure that even the closest friendship or romance or marriage or anything in this life actually still can't bear who we really are. So we're deeply deceived about who we are. So it makes us hard to imagine God can be that way. And He is. He is the one that can bear it. He is the one that delights to bear it. His grace is bigger than your sin. Maybe your circumstances feel beyond hope. Maybe you think He's good, but not powerful. That's actually where the disciples are. These are fishermen terrified of the sea. That's where Jesus was on the evening of His arrest. He actually also pleaded that His circumstances would be taken away. He didn't want to go to the cross. But He endured the hopelessness of death to give you the promise of the resurrection. He conquered the one thing in this world that no one has ever conquered. And the whole of the Bible tells you and tells me Either the resurrection happened or it didn't. And if it didn't, disregard all of this. You know the Bible says that in 1 Corinthians 15. And pity the people that keep trying to follow this. But if the resurrection did happen, there is a hope past the one thing that has control over all of us. If we have been united with Him in a death like His, Paul says, we will certainly also be united with Him in a resurrection like His. If you are not sure of His power, look to the resurrection. If nothing else, just go historically examine the conversations about whether or not the resurrection happened. Historically. Whether or not you're a Christian. If you're... Okay, if... I'll close with this really quickly. If you're here and you're like, I don't know what I think about this. I like RUF, I like coming. I'm skeptical. Sometimes I like it, sometimes I don't. Sometimes I like the teaching, sometimes I'm frustrated. Here's the one thing I would ask you to do. And, I, and this is not very much, don't worry. Be sad. And this is what I mean. Trust your sadness anytime it creeps into your life. Trust it. Don't be afraid of it. Entertain it and explore it. The way one counselor said it is, said sadness is the most holy emotion. Sadness is the emotion you almost can never screw up. We can screw up anger, right, all the time. Every instance of anger, like 80% of the time, is probably not right. Right? We can screw up joy. Right? I enjoy Auburn losing. That's not okay. That's not Christian. Right? We can screw up attraction. Yes, can we admit this? We can screw up. There are a lot of feelings we can screw up. You, can't, you pretty much can't screw up sadness. Because sadness is the thing registering you and bringing you down, rightly, because you're like, something's not right and I can't be okay now. Trust that. Trust that blinking light on your dashboard. Entertain it. Explore it. Because what I think that is, what I'm convinced it is, is your feeling that there should be someone who could have done something. There should be power over this. Somebody should have fixed this. And then be relentless in asking what are the different powers and who are the different people that have tried to do something, does it work? So if nothing else, trust your sadness, entertain it, explore it, don't take cheap answers to it, don't scroll through Twitter to avoid it. What Jesus is here to tell us is that He is more powerful than our circumstances. 
even death, that He is better than we could hope. And if you actually begin to live in line of that reality, you can be free tomorrow. You can be free tonight. If you live apart from that reality, you'll live in fear. But there's no other way. Do you want to be free? Jesus is good, and He has power to save. Let's pray.